Number one, Devil's Footprints. It was the 9th of February, 1855, when the Devil's Footprints first appeared. The townspeople in country Devon, England, woke up that morning to find thousands of mysterious tracks in the snow. The tracks resembled footprints left by a cloven hoof, and they extended through an area that covered several towns. The mysterious footprints were found to go up the sides of walls, into gardens, onto roofs, up and down the sides of fences, where it was impossible for any person or animal to go. Some of the tracks just came to a stop in the middle of nowhere, as if their owner had suddenly vanished. Some stopped abruptly and continued after a large break, and others stopped at high walls, only to continue on the other side, leaving the snow on the top of the wall untouched. A set of footprints even went across the River X, continuing on the other side as if whoever or whatever had left them had passed straight across the water. A feeling of deep unease spread through the people who lived in the area, and many believed that the footprints could only have been made by the devil himself. There were also rumors about sightings of a devil-like figure in the Devon area during the scare. Many townspeople armed themselves and attempted to track down the beast responsible without success. There were those who refused to believe that the footprints had been made by the devil. They came up with their own theories. Some said the townspeople might have been nuts and imagined the whole thing. Others thought that the tracks could have been left by hopping mice. Some theorized that a balloon might have floated across the landscape, trailing a rope, making odd tracks in the snow on its way. Yet more people said it could have been caused by kangaroos who escaped from the zoo, although the footprints looked nothing like the tracks a kangaroo would leave. Do you really think these theories are likely? Perhaps it is easier to believe in unlikely explanations rather than accept that the devil visited Devon one cold winter's night and stalked through the town, looking for sinners to drag down to hell. Today, the devil's footprints remain an unsolved mystery, and the strange phenomenon is still unexplained. Number 2. Emily Rose The first person to recognize that Annalise Michael was possessed by demons was an older woman accompanying the girl on a pilgrimage. She noticed that Annalise would not walk past a certain image of Jesus. She refused to drink water from a holy spring and smelled bad, hellishly bad. An exorcist in a nearby town examined Michael and returned a diagnosis of demonic possession. The bishop issued permission to perform the rite of exorcism according to the Roman ritual of 1614. Half a year and 67 rites of exorcisms later, Annalise Michael was dead at 23. Annalise Michael did not die in the Middle Ages, but in 1976 in the small town of Klingenberg, in the heart of one of the most civilized and advanced countries in Europe, Germany. Two years after Michael's death, a German court found her parents and the two priests involved guilty of negligent 
manslaughter and sentenced them to six months in prison, suspended with three years probation. What shocked Germany most was the fact that it could happen in a country that prides itself on being highly rational and highly secularized. The surprising thing was that the people connected to Michael were all completely convinced that she had really been possessed, says Franz Barthel, amazement still in his voice three decades after he covered the story for the regional daily paper. Many years later, I visited the woman who first diagnosed the devil, Barthel says. She blessed my microphone with holy water because I was working for the radio then, and it was likely that the devil was in control of the microphone. Michael was raised in a strict Catholic family in Bavaria, which rejected the reforms of Vatican II and flirted with religious fringe groups. While other kids her age were rebelling against authority and experimenting with sex, she tried to atone for the sins of wayward priests and drug addicts by sleeping on a bare floor in the middle of winter. According to court findings, she experienced her first epileptic attack in 1969 and by 1973 was suffering from depression and considering suicide. Soon, she was seeing the faces of demons on the people and things around her, and voices told her she was damned. Under the influence of her demons, Michael ripped the clothes off her body, compulsively performed up to 400 squats a day, crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days, ate spiders and coal, bit the head off of a dead bird, and licked her own urine from the floor. By 1975, Michael was asking for an exorcism. The Reverend Ernst Alt and Arnold Renz performed the rite 67 times over the first half of 1976. Some of the sessions took up to four hours. 42 sessions were recorded on tape. Michael's recorded voice can still send shivers up your spine. It is the voice of a demon, growling, barking, inhuman, and surprisingly like the voice of Linda Blair in The Exorcist, which had been released in Germany two years earlier. Sometimes the demons identified themselves as Cain, Nero, Judas, Lucifer, Hitler, and others and even answered the exorcist questions explaining what was wrong with the church or why they were in hell. People are stupid as pigs, spat Hitler. They think it's all over after death. It goes on, Judas said Hitler was nothing but a big mouth and had no real say in hell. Anyway, it wasn't the exorcism that killed Annalise Michael. At some point she began talking increasingly about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the apostate priest of the modern church and refused to eat. Though she had received treatment for epilepsy, by this time, at her own request, doctors were no longer being consulted. Her parents and the exorcist and herself decided to rely completely on the exorcism. By the time Michael died of starvation, she weighed only 68 pounds. After her death, the Annalise Michael trial also set reason. After her death, the Annalise Michael trial also set reason against faith. I personally, I personally believe that this case was handled in such a way as to play down the reality of the devil, says Norbert Baumart, Jesuit priest at the chairman of the Theological Commission of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal in Germany, which cannot perform exorcism 
but practices prayers for deliverance from demonic nuisance. The trial went to the heart of faith. If the Bible is true, then the miracles must have really happened and Satan must be real. But it's not easy preaching the existence of the devil to one of the most secularized countries in Europe. A study by Research Institute, Infratest, and published in Germany News Weekly last month showed that even among churchgoers, approximately a third of baptized Catholics and half of baptized Protestants do not believe in life after death. I understand the complaint that German theologians are too rational, says Clemens Richter, professor for liturgical science in Munster, but exorcism is all about helping the sick. In Annalise Michael's case, the sickness was supported. When I go to a patient and support her in her delusion, she gets the impression that she really is possessed. Exorcism is far more widespread today than most people imagine. According to Richter, there are about 70 practicing exorcists in France and just as many employed in Italy. In July this year, a congress in Poland was reportedly attended by about 350 practicing exorcists. Germany is the major European exception. Here, there are only two or three practicing exorcists, and though they have the approval of their bishops, they operate in secret. Secularization has the church in its grip, says Ulrich Nyman, a Jesuit priest, medical doctor, and psychiatrist who often has been called into exorcism cases by the clergyman. We do a lot for the third world, but little for the faith in the transcendent God. The German church is far too cerebral. Nieman doesn't consider himself an exorcist and doesn't perform the Roman ritual of 1614. As a doctor, I say there is no such thing as possession, he says. In my view, these patients are mentally ill. I pray with them, but that alone doesn't help. You have to deal with them as a psychiatrist. But at the same time, when a patient comes from Eastern Europe and believes that he's been impaired by evil, it would be a mistake to ignore his belief system. After the Michael trial, German bishops and theologians formed a commission to review the exorcism rite, and in 1984 they petitioned Rome to change it. The heart of the problem they found was the practice of speaking directly or imperatively to the devil that is, I command the unclean spirit. That part of the rite seemed to do the most damage, since it confirmed to the patient that he or she was truly possessed. The Germans didn't get what they wanted. We were astonished when Rome issued a change of exorcism formula in 1999, which left open the responsibility of speaking to the devil directly, says Richter. But you can't know for certain that the patient is truly possessed of the devil. 30 years after Michael's death, with both exorcists and her father also dead, Michael is still revered by small groups of Catholics who believe she atoned for wayward priests and sinful youth and honor her as an unofficial saint. Buses often from Holland, I think, still come to Annalise's grave, Barthel says. The grave is a gathering point for religious outsiders. They write notes with requests and thanks for her help, and they leave them on her grave. They pray, sing, and travel on. Number three, seaweed. One chilly October night in the early 1900s, Two sisters were out driving in Cape Cod when their car broke down. It was just after midnight and they were stranded in the middle of nowhere. 
even worse, it began to rain, and it looked like there was a storm on the way. They saw an old house nearby, so they made their way up the path, through the mud and the weeds, and knocked on the door. The sisters stood there waiting in the moonlight, but there was no answer. When they tried the front door, they discovered it was unlocked, so they went inside and took a look around. They found themselves in a large room and the walls lined with books. Everything was covered in a thick layer of dust. It was warm and dry, so they decided to stay there for the night. They fetched some blankets from the car, they laid down on the floor, and went to sleep. A few hours later, they were awoken by a loud noise. When they opened their eyes, the sisters were shocked to see a figure standing in front of the fireplace. It was a man, and he was dressed like a sea captain. His clothes were dripping wet. All the frightened women could do was grip each other tightly and stare at this apparition. After a few moments, one of the sisters managed to call out in a trembling voice. Who's there? The man let out a long, low groan, and then, right before their eyes, he seemed to slowly dissolve into nothing. Unable to believe their eyes, the sisters decided that they must have dreamed it or imagined it, so they laid back down and tried to go to sleep again. The next morning when they woke up, one of the sisters gasped and pointed at the floor. There were no footprints in the dust except their own. However, in front of the fireplace, there was a pool of water, and lying in it was a piece of wet seaweed. One of the sisters put her fingers in the water and lifted it to her tongue. It was salty. They hurried out of the old house and managed to flag down a passing car. The driver gave them a ride into the nearest town. When they asked people about the abandoned house, they were told no one had lived there for years. The people who had owned it moved away after their son was drowned at sea. Before they left the house that morning, the sisters had taken that piece of seaweed with them. They sent it away to have it examined. When the results came back, the sisters were very surprised.